0: This is the Soil Sense podcast, where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey, thanks for showing up for another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. We're down to just two remaining episodes for this season this one today and then another one we're going to be releasing next week and today's episode is really a great one to include towards the end of a season because it's with a working technical agronomist i think it's always great to get the perspective of an agronomist on the show because in a lot of ways they're tying together many of the topics we talk about regularly they have to be up to date on the latest research and the latest products but they also have to offer solutions that work and are profitable and agronomically feasible for their farmer customers. On the show today, we have Kyle Oki, regional agronomist at Winfield United. Most listeners are familiar with Winfield United, the large ag retail network that is part of Lando Lakes, a member owned cooperative. Kyle is responsible for being a technical resource on anything related to crop protection, which includes employee training, customer education, troubleshooting and technical advice. His job is impressive both in its scope of responsibilities, but also in its geography. Kyle covers all the way from the Red River Valley across all of North Dakota and Montana. But luckily for him and for Winfield United, he's got just the right background for the job.
1: I grew up in the Red River Valley, just outside of Fargo-Moorhead on the Minnesota side. You know, spent a lot of time there, grew up there, have family of farms there. So very familiar with the farming practices there, the weed spectrum, the things that get used, the crop rotation, all that. And then I spent not very long, like six years in the Devil's Lake area. And then got a little more exposed to some different crops, you know, still a lot of corn, wheat, soybeans, like you'd see in the Valley, but then started layering in things like flax, canola, Sometimes peas, a lot of dry beans, got a lot of experience there. So just got a real broad range from that. And then ended up uh, moving farther west after getting married. And I live in Western North Dakota now. And that was a eye opener as far as how different things get still again to compare, you know, how Western North Dakota is with predominantly no-till, way different yield goals Way different farming practices, but still very successful farmers. And so I I guess I just chalk it up to the, the time spent in different areas. And then with the job now, I do get around the state. So I get to see a lot of things and just get to share a lot of experiences with people. So I guess that's maybe where my confidence comes from helping in the region I serve.
0: As Kyle mentioned, he has quite a broad set of experiences, and that's going to be evident today as we navigate really a variety of topics from tillage to carbon to pH to some mistakes he's seeing some farmers make in a dry year like this one. All of these diverse experiences in different geographies has really shown, Kyle, where farmers differ and where they are largely the same.
1: I definitely think it doesn't matter who they are as a farmer. I think they all have the same goal in mind and it's passing on what they have to the next generation. They realize that they maybe have 40 or 50 seasons, you know, if they have a a nice long career in farming to farm this, but it's not like you can just hang it up and retire like you can from a nine to five job, right? You can't just go mine your soil, depleted of all its nutrients, depleted of all its resources. So I think every farmer has the intention to do the best job they can, you know, and this soil health movement, I think, you know, if a farmer wants to call it that or not, I think most are moving in that direction. They see that certain practices do give better tilt to the soil, better moisture retention or better moisture management, you know, depending on what part of the state you're in. You know, if you're farther east, it's moisture management as far as keeping fields fit to plant in and moisture management in the west may be a totally different thing it might be reduced tillage and lots of residue to catch snow and have moisture you know so that they can germinate seed and get as much possible out of what they plant in the following season but i think this movement or this idea of soil health even if they're not calling it that themselves i think all these farmers really have that in the top of their mind like what do i do to be sustainable You know, through all my seasons of farming that I have uh, behind me and what I have in front of me. You see a lot of them look more and more at balanced fertility programs. Well, where I'm at, in order to be successful, you have to be a zero-till farmer. If you do any major tillage, it's such a moisture-robbing practice out there that you just don't have near the yield potential on any crop as far as that speaks like you could go work the soil black for corn the warmer it gets in a cold spring the sooner that corn comes out of the ground but then you're really you're losing a lot of moisture later in the season and so it ends up not being as good for the corn where we've seen more and more guys starting to transition to say like a strip till so a hybrid tillage system and that seemed to be marrying the best of both worlds for most cases And of course, you know, everyone kind of goes through the ups and downs of that, because some years on a, like, I'm just thinking of corn in particular now in in the western part of the state, where on a very dry year, that still wins every time just because of moisture retention, where a strip till, you still lose a little bit of moisture. But on a wet year, it's the complete opposite. And and so there's just kind of the growing pains of learning what works, what doesn't work.
0: And when you heard Kyle say there that zero-till is almost a requirement for success where he's located, that's in Dickinson, North Dakota in the western part of the state. He's also seen strip-till work really well in a variety of situations.
1: My personal opinion is strip-till is an absolutely great practice to be making because you're only working up on a four-inch band of dirt. And so you're still maintaining that undisturbed soil profile. So it's Nice, slow mineralization of organic matter that is the benefit of no tilling long-term. You're not disrupting that cycle. But at the same time, you're creating a dark strip of dirt that warms up faster, and then with that strip-till unit, you're actually able to deep-band nutrients. So, for example, things like potassium and phosphate and some micronutrients. You're able to deep-band those and get those into a rooting zone Instead of broadcasting it, so you're concentrating where you need it as far as a corn grower speaks, and it's a very positive thing in my opinion, agronomically and as far as the soil health side of it goes. You know, I think it's a really good marriage of good agronomic practices and then a, a soil health perspective. I am a big fan of strip till when it comes to that because if you're no tilling, not everyone's set up with the planters that can do everything, like a uh, two by two placement and then an in starter and ways to get immobile nutrients, you know, deeper into the ground where the plants can actually reach it. So I, I see more and more of the, the strip-till thing catching on just because it's a good marriage of, you know, two good things, good agronomics and, and good soil health.
0: Well, just like about everywhere these days, many of Kyle's conversations are drifting to questions about carbon, And not just about sequestering more carbon to earn money from carbon credits, but also to agronomic principles of carbon, like the carbon-to-nitrogen ratio.
1: It's an interesting discussion because, you know, I think a lot look as carbon stored in the soil is a good thing. I look as an agronomist, and I think purely to, like you were saying, talk about the carbon-to-nitrogen ratio. Well, if you have a high amount of carbon in the soil, and so here we're talking plant residues talking root matter we're talking crop residues that are on top to ground that are slowly breaking down if you have a high amount of carbon in the soil that will immediately tie up any nitrogen you apply and it's only temporary it's not a fixed thing forever it's a soil life thing that ties it up and eventually breaks it down I mean in the ideal soil To get crop growth speaking agronomically, you want to have a carbon to nitrogen ratio of roughly 20 or 25 parts carbon to one part nitrogen. That's the ideal ratio to have any applied nitrogen to be immediately ready to use right away. If you start adding more carbon to that, more plant residues, then actually what will happen, it's like a tie up of sorts the soil bacteria and all that is going to need that nitrogen first to break down that carbon to try to get it to that ratio and so it's a temporary tie-up and when that becomes available well that depends if it's dry that's really tough to say if you've got good heat and good soil moisture by the end of the season it could all be available again right away but but think of it like this uh you know, I'm a Western North Dakota person talking about corn and soybeans, but corn and soybeans are, I think, the one that is easiest to talk about in this sense. If you're growing corn after soybeans, you generally get given a credit. So they're saying, hey, anywhere from 30 to 40 pounds of nitrogen credit is not necessarily a nitrogen credit more than it is if you were to plant corn after corn. They consider that the full rate of nitrogen recommended, but really what's happening is you're adding more because you're overcoming the carbon to nitrogen tie-up that's happening temporarily. Soybean residue is typically that 24, 25 to 1 carbon to nitrogen, and so it's in that ideal ratio, and so it seems that there's more nitrogen more readily available from everything you apply, so it gets treated like a credit. So that, that's carbon and nitrogen is how I see it. But again, how this equates back to soil health and no-till and cover crops and how it stores carbon. There's a lot we're going to learn, I think, in future years as this goes. I don't know if there's right or wrong answers on how much carbon a farmer is actually storing or not. I think this is something that's going to be constantly evolving as time goes.
0: While Kyle doesn't see carbon credits as the silver bullet solution some in the media may make them out to be, he does see it as an opening in the door for more people to consider prioritizing soil health.
1: Right. And and it's like a, you know, a discussion that I had with, with Abby Wick just the other week, like the Trutera Insights engine that's helping farmers market their carbon credits. I mean, that's all that tool's doing. And it's just laying out, hey, here are the things based on the parameters that have been set, saying this is how you're going to be doing a better job storing carbon. Now, again, agronomically, it kind of throws me off a little bit on the carbon storage thing. But the big thing is that this is incentivizing good soil health practices. That's what I see behind it is that it's an incentivization to do the right thing. You know, just to start building soil health if you're in an area that maybe you're aggressively tilling ground. But again, then you have places out west like here, it's been like that for 30, 40 years. If you don't follow some of these no-till practices, well, someone else will be renting your ground. It's just you don't survive.
0: Now, speaking of adopting new practices and that Trutera Insights Engine he mentioned, which is a separate division of Land O'Lakes, I I wanted to know from Kyle what he's seeing in farmers' willingness to adopt these new technologies and new approaches. I mean, what separates those that do from those that don't?
1: I think the ones that have embraced technology and are really taking the bull by the horns, I, I think are going to be the ones that end up on top in the end and and technology means so many things now but i'm thinking of a particular example that's slowly developing and what i mean slowly developing the problem's already here and this is a western north dakota mostly issue and the real answer to the solution a lot of farmers don't want to accept because it's an expensive fix but this will come back to technology i promise you is we have a soil acidity issue in Western North Dakota. It's becoming very evident where a composite soil sample, I've seen them down as low as 4.5 pH. Now you're down to 4.5 pH, that's the so That's like, let's say 20 quarters across 160 acres. That's saying that there are areas that have lower pH than that and higher pH than that. Oh, if you're lower than four and a half, boy. It's starting to get questionable if things even grow. And that's what people are seeing. They're seeing patches of ground that don't grow wheat, barley, canola, durum, any of it. But it's not necessarily like fence row to fence row. It's patches. It's irregular. And I'll be like a half acre patch here and maybe a half acre patch there. But it's starting to show up. And it's because we don't till the ground. And because they haven't been tilling the ground for, let's say, 40 years at least, it leaves that soil profile undisturbed. They've been storing more moisture. They've been incrementally growing better and better and better crops. Well, what happens when you grow better and better crops? You start fertilizing it more. So they're starting to put more and more and more fertilizer. And this is a slowly growing issue because when you start to put so much nitrogen fertilizer up in that very top, you know, two, three inches of ground, it started to to displace what made it a higher pH to begin with. So it's displacing all the calcium mostly that was up there. And now that's all leached farther. So if you look on like a, a two tiered soil sample with that has like a zero to six and then a, a six to 24, you'll see an acidic topsoil with a more typical North Dakota base. So that six to 24 will be usually seven to seven and a half. And that topsoil will be anywhere from four to six. Ultimately, if you could take a moldboard plow and turn it up, you'd probably equalize your pH. But that would be death by a thousand cuts (laughs) to a lot of farmers here. You can't do that. And so here's where I'm going back to the technology thing is. The answer to acidic soils is liming. Lime? is something that's not as easy to find in North Dakota. It's not like there's a, a quarry like they do in the I states that they can go get calcium carbonate from, or something like that. The source we do have generally is municipal, like the city's water treatment plants or sugar beet plants, which they're all up and down the Red River Valley. In Western North Dakota, we have one just on the other side of the border in Sydney, Montana. You can go haul that away for free, but freight still costs something. And so the last time I talked to someone about this is last fall. In that $25 a ton range is what shipping would cost to get lime dumped into a field. And that's not applicating it yet. If you just take a composite soil sample that says 4.5 pH, and I'm not giving the real figures here. I'm just thinking out loud in my head. You get a 4.5 pH and that buffer pH, let's just say it takes 2.5 to 3 tons of lime. Well... That's a major sticker shock. You're saying you have a pH issue, and now it's going to take 60 to $75 an acre just in lime? That doesn't pencil off to a farmer. But if those farmers that are embracing their technology tools, and now they're going out there looking at aerial imagery, trying to identify zones, or better yet, Some of these guys may have a better idea that are using their planters that have all these technology tools on them, like smart firmers from the precision planting company that's giving you like EC readings, which you can relate back to pH. And so it gives you more of a pointed idea, or maybe they go out and grid soil sample. Now they may find out that they only need to apply that amount of lime on, let's say 30% of their acres. Now that's a little more digestible. And you could see a great return on yield from improving your pH on having that low of pH. And the farmers that really understand it are in the areas that really do have the lime, let's say, every five, six years. Where here, we don't deal with that. But that's where I see just one example in western North Dakota, where I think technology is really going to pay for those guys that are, are adopting it. In utilizing this data that they're collecting. So I see for a limited moisture environment like Western North Dakota. Trying to pinpoint an exact area where you need to make the lime application. I could see that being the long-term fix. Like you spending that money once and that lasting a decade. You know, when we start looking at it like that. Now that doesn't look so bad. A Western North Dakota farm. The investment in the lime may be like a Red River Valley farmer investing in the drain tile. It's expensive, but that's truly what's going to improve your yield and your bottom line.
0: Unfortunately, pH is just one of the issues facing farmers in Kyle's territory this year. For many, it's extremely dry. And while there aren't a lot of options under these conditions, Kyle is cautioning producers against inadvertently sabotaging themselves by going too far and expecting the worst.
1: It's depressing in some parts of the state. When they say it's dry, like it's so dry that, you know, some places we might not germinate what was planted out of the ground until we actually do get some really amountable amount of moisture. You know, we're going to need an inch of rain in some areas to really get some stuff out of the ground. And then there's other places that have better ground moisture uh, scenarios. But it's, uh, I guess my biggest thing is just don't plan for a disaster. There are certain things you can cut back on, and that's okay. You know, like maybe with nitrogen, we know we could go out with a, a little reduced rate from what your normal yield goal may be on certain crops, like wheat and corn. And know just some about the physiology of those crops. Know that if we get rain in late May here or early June, we can go and side dress, like top dress wheat or side dress corn later and try to get that nitrogen on when we can get a rainfall to actually work it in the ground. So there's some things you can change there, but there's other things like populations. Like, you know, these guys that are out there planting corn right now, Don't reduce your population by 40, 50% because it's going to be dry and you're just putting corn in to collect insurance kind of thing. Because what happens if the weather gets better and all of a sudden you have all the right growing conditions? You know, you, you start to put in a substantial reduction to your planted population, which I've heard some wild stories that that was the plan for some people. Now, I'm not saying that that's a widespread thing, but I've heard it. And you go do that, that disaster you planned for, you're going to get handed to you, guaranteed, because I can tell you what, you know, that 15 to 20,000 corn population is going to give you because that's what we do in Western North Dakota. (laughs) You know, like on a good year we can get, I mean, if everything happens right and our yields are more of a disaster yield for someone on the east end of the state.
0: In addition to covering such a huge area with so many agronomic products, somehow Kyle still found time this past year to launch a podcast alongside former Soil Sense guest Jason Hansen. The show is called Agronomist's Happy Hour, and Dr. Abby Wick, who produces this show, was recently a guest. I asked Kyle to give us a recommendation of an episode new listeners should make sure they check out, of course, after they listen to the one with Abby.
1: I can't remember what number episode it is. But probably one of the more fun ones we've done is just both me and Jason going back and forth. We've called it complaints and cocktails. We just share the stories we've had. Sometimes things don't work or they don't work as expected. And maybe it's a product's fault. Maybe it's another farmer's fault, but it's a complaint. And so we walked through different complaints that we've been part of, you know, and what's happened along the way and tried to walk through how we walked through it and what the outcome was. Sometimes they were good. Like everyone was happy at the end. Sometimes you just, you might've been right. They were wrong. They didn't care. They're pissed. <laughs> Nobody wins. You know, sometimes those happen. happened, but uh, we shared the good and the bad and the ugly. If they want to listen to the agronomist happy hour and listen to one episode from us, I'd say that would be us in
0: a nutshell. Okay, there you go. Go check out Complaints and Cocktails on the Agronomist's Happy Hour. Thanks so much to Kyle Oki for joining us on the show. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks as well to our sponsors of Soil Sense, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Harvest Dry Bean Association, the North Dakota Barley Council, and Anheuser-Busch. If you're getting value from this podcast, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and share your favorite episodes on Twitter with the hashtag SoilSense. We'll be back with another great episode next week.